Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 2. Now, he's been sort of following uh, ideas about discipleship. Came to the book of Acts and the punchline sort of at the end of the chapter, and I figured on the way to the end of the chapter we'd stop at some places. And Acts chapter 2 is just such a rich message, the first message ever preached after the resurrection and it's just rich and full, and personally, I couldn't resist. Let's, <clears throat> it's taken a while to get to the punchline, but uh, I hope uh, along the way it's been good. So we've seen in the book of Acts, as we start in the chapter, it begins with the actual event of Pentecost, that final great redemptive act in history. Um, Jesus being born into history as a redemptive act, Jesus being inaugurated as Messiah at the River Jordan as a redemptive act, Jesus dying on a cross as a redemptive act, Jesus rising from the grave, Jesus ascending to heaven, these are redemptive acts. And this final great redemptive act that, that impacts all of us, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit comes in Pentecost. So we looked at the event, we looked at Joel chapter two, Peter explaining the event, first of all, appeals to Joel chapter two, where there's a specific statement that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh, and Joel tap, chapter two <clears throat> sort of lays out a framework for the history of redemption, so we looked at that, the last days, explained by Joel. Then once Peter has explained what, uh, what this, this activity on Pentecost with flames of fire and people speaking in the tongues of other nations, praising God, he starts to bring an indictment against the people before him. He reminds people that Jesus was approved of God, that they knew this, that he had been in their midst. He, <clears throat> sorry, then he asserts that uh, they had killed the Lord of glory. They did it through the means of uh, other people, of the Roman, Roman government but they were responsible. Nevertheless, it all happened according to the purpose, divine purpose and sovereignty of God. And we looked at those things. We then started to introduce Psalm 16, where Peter begins by asserting the resurrection. They had killed the Lord of glory, but Peter says, but God raised him up again. <clears throat> Peter starts with a very simple, plain, powerful assertion of the historical fact of the resurrection. Every dynamic that humans can employ was used against Jesus, but God raised him up. Every dynamic that the forces of darkness could muster was arrayed against Jesus, but God raised him up. An overwhelming testimony specifically that the Father raised up Jesus, Acts 2.24. And he raised up Jesus by putting an end to the agony of his death. Peter makes it clear that this was a resurrection from a state of real death. Jesus endured the awful realities of the process of dying and the resultant state of death. And Psalm 2 makes it clear that the worst part of death, the essence of death, is the ultimately the separation from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the grace of God in the new covenant, Jesus tasted of death for all his people for all time. Jesus experienced the pangs or the agonies of death the terrors, the emptiness, the forsakenness of death. Death is real, death is awful. There's nothing good about it, there's nothing noble about it. It's just the end of our humanity. 
Jesus endured the spectacle of humiliation. Jesus endured the physical pain and torture. He endured the abandonment of God and then he gave up his spirit. Jesus experienced every aspect of death for us, except, as we shall see, bodily decay. And the Greek phrase, putting into the agony of death, points us to Psalm 18. We looked at that last week. A vivid picture of not only the agony of death, but even more vividly, a poetic picture of God rescuing Jesus from that death. Then there was Peter's final observation, at least in this sort of sentence here. It was impossible for Jesus to be held by its power, and that's why he was raised. And the Greek literally says it's not possible for him to be held by it. And the, that word held is a, is a strong word. It means a sense of to grasp firmly, to take into custody, to seize. Death had seized on Jesus, just like it will one day seize on every human being. It's what a harsh thing. It circumscribes us, it dismantles us. It cannot be reversed by human effort being held in the power of death, and yet Jesus was released from it. It was an existential necessity. Jesus had to be released from death. It was not possible for death to hold its grip on him, and it was not possible for two reasons, because of who Jesus is and the nature of his death. So we looked at a few things. It was not possible for Jesus to be held in the power, the grip of death, because he's the eternal son of God. It was not possible because he's the Holy One, the Righteous One, the Prince of Life. Not possible to hold him because of who he is. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, so that's what he accomplished. And once he had done that, as we just sang in a song, once he had done that, death no longer had a grip on him. He was, <clears throat> he was atoning for the sins of everyone who he represented. Hebrews chapter one and verse three, he made purification for sins. And then he rose and went into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. He fully atoned for those who he represented in Romans 4. We were, he was raised for our justification. <clears throat> it was not possible for Jesus to remain in the power of death, to be in its grip, because he's our great high priest. Now Peter moves on. He's made these statements, he's sort of laid this foundational thinking, and then he's gonna to return to scripture again. And what's interesting is the first few acts, uh, chapters of Acts, I may have mentioned before because it's just always in my mind, are just so full of an appeal back to scripture. It's just an example to us of how to, I don't know, ourselves anyway appreciate and understand all that's transpired in Christ. It just didn't come out of nowhere. It is a fulfillment of the entirety of scripture. Uh, certain passages are adduced by Peter, and then there'll be statements that all that prophesied, you know, spoke of these days, these days of Joel, these days of the reign of Christ. And so here, Peter is now going to appeal again to a large passage of scripture. He's going to quote it, uh, mainly from the Septuagint, um, and he's gonna demonstrate that the resurrection, not just simply the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but the resurrection is clearly presented to us from the Old Testament. So I want us just to pray and ask the Lord to be with us in this aspect of things. Heavenly Father, we come again to you. Uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, we can trust in your holy word, that these are words of life, 
that these are the foundation of everything, of our hope. Lord, by your word, you created the heavens and the earth. And uh, Lord, you have uh, presented your word, spoken your word, recorded your word, preserved your word down through the centuries. And you have told us to trust that word because you stand behind it with all that you are, your entire being, all of your character, all of your transcendent power and glory is behind that word and you will bring it to pass, not a yoda or a tittle, not the smallest flare of a pin from that will fall until it's all accomplished. Lord, we're coming to Psalm 16 this morning and uh, just pray, Lord, that you would fill our souls with it. That we would see in this psalm, first of all, it's your holy word. We would see that the Holy Spirit is there, but more than that, more specifically than that, that it is the Spirit of Christ speaking in this psalm. That in this psalm, David morphs into the Messiah. And the Lord Jesus, you yourself were, as it were, taking over and speaking through this man. And in these words of this psalm, we can see your heart reflected. And uh, Lord, that that would just grip us, that that would encourage us, that we would want to imitate it in everything. But those parts where you express your hope that you will never die, your body will never uh, see corruption, that Lord, we will just, again, we would just have confidence in that, be gripped by that. Um, Lord, for those of us here this morning who may be tired, just just give us uh, some extra energy now to just perk up and pay attention to your word and benefit from it. For those who have been plagued with doubts, that Lord, this, this word would come and just assuage all those doubts. How can a man who lived a thousand years before the cross ever describe it, a thousand years before the resurrection, ever describe it in such vivid detail? Lord, this is your word. Um, this is not just something that's mythical or put together by men. Uh, this is absolutely your holy scriptures. It's undeniable. And uh, so that, Lord, anyone who comes here with doubts, that those doubts would be answered and assuaged. And, uh, Lord, those who come just, just having a hard time, uh, having a hard time this week or even this month or this year, Lord, you would speak to their souls, encourage them with just faith and hope and love. Um, that, Lord, we could all just sort of sit back and take in a glorious spirit of Christ speaking a thousand years before you ever came. In Jesus' name, amen. So Peter begins by saying, for David says concerning him, and then he's going to quote Psalm 2. He's talking about the resurrection. He's going to prove from the scriptures that Jesus was raised from the dead. Um, He already says it's a historic fact, but he's going to say this historic fact is the result of some prophetic statements that give us clarity about this resurrection, that uh, give us its setting. The resurrection is a great diamond and uh, Peter's gonna give us the setting in which to put it. Now Peter states that David wrote this psalm, Psalm 16, and he states that it's not about himself. It says David said these things, wrote this psalm concerning him, concerning Jesus. It's about the Messiah. So that's the first thing that we're gonna wanna understand as we start to read this word, this psalm. The psalm is messianic, that is, has to do with the Messiah. There are a number of places in the psalms that are messianic. Psalm 2 is messianic. Psalm 110 is messianic. Psalm 22 is messianic. Many other places, Psalm 89, Psalm 45, these are messianic psalms. But I don't think there's anything like Psalm 16 where from almost beginning to end, 
It's, it's the Messiah, the Spirit of Christ speaking through David. Now we know that this happens. We know that that, that is how we can understand the Old Testament scriptures. Peter writes to us in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. He's talked about the so great a salvation that we have, that we rejoice in, that we stand fast in concerning this salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. So here is Paul saying that if you want to understand how to interpret the prophets, well, they're talking about the grace that comes to believers, Jew and Gentile. Don't get caught up in a Jewish gospel or a Jewish era because it's just really not described in the Old Testament, not if we read it properly. The salvation that the prophets prophesied about is the grace to come unto believers, Jew and Gentile. It is the church of Christ that is the ultimate focus of the Old Testament. The grace that was to be yours, then these prophets, they knew they were prophesying about the grace to come unto us, about the age in which we live. But they didn't see it in detail, and so they searched and inquired carefully. They're like, they knew, I'm prophesying, I'm prophesying about a Messiah, but how do I put this all together? And so each of the prophets, as they go along, they probably had some prophets before them that they might read, but they are all still going, what is this ultimately about? And they were inquiring about what person or what time the Spirit of Christ was in them when it predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the glories that should come after. By the way, sometimes I read the ASV is printed in my mind. So sometimes I'm looking at the words, but I'm, I'm seeing the ASV. So I won't exactly follow uh, what you see on the screen. What time or what manner of time, what person the Spirit of Christ was in them. Acts chapter 13 also appeals to Psalm 16, and so it might be good just to look at that for a minute. In Acts 13, Peter was preaching at the synagogue of Antioch and Pisidia in Asia Minor, not Antioch and Assyria, or Syria rather, but the one in Asia Minor. He's rehearsed the the history of redemption from the Old Testament in the verses that are before verse 32, 16 through 31. And now he comes to the culmination of that history of redemption in Jesus. And so again, the great hope of the Jews is not a millennial kingdom. It's a resurrection and new heavens and new earth, and we see it here. We bring you good tidings of a promise made unto the fathers that God has fulfilled the same unto our children and that he raised up Jesus. If you were to look at all the promises in the Old Testament made that concern the Jewish people, they all ultimately find their fulfillment and their culmination in the resurrection of Christ in 2000, or rather in 30 AD. And we have lived in the reality of that and the fulfillment of it and the blessing of it and the power of it for 2,000 years. 2,000 years of Christ's power, 2,000 years of Christ's glory, 2,000 years of Jesus saving sinners, Jew and Gentile from sin, bringing them to his heavenly kingdom, writing the laws of God on their hearts, saving us from sin. He's fulfilled the same to our children and that he raised up Jesus. Then he appeals to Psalm 2. As it said in the second Psalm, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. Again, as I mentioned last week, if you read commentators on Psalm 2, they all tend to 
in their, I guess, scholarliness puzzle over verse 7. What does it mean, you are my son, this day have I begotten you? And you'll get just reams of literature on it. It's like, why don't we just listen to Paul? I mean, why don't we just take one line from Paul and understand what Psalm 2, verse 7 is about? When God says to the son, you are my son, this day have I begotten you, it's clearly about the resurrection of the Christ. Jesus was begotten not in terms of incarnation. We tend to think that, but that's not what begetting is. This day have I installed you as my son. This day have I raised you from the dead. This day have I brought you to my right hand. That is what the second psalm is about. Peter goes on now, or rather Paul goes on now, concerning that he raised him up from the dead. Now no more to return to corruption. He has spoken on this wise or in this manner. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So Paul appeals to the second psalm about the resurrection of Christ. Now he appeals to Isaiah 55, verse 3, where it says, I will give you the holy and the sure blessings of David. In that passage, Isaiah 55, 1 and following, 1 through 3 and following, the Davidic covenant is said to be fulfilled in the resurrection and the reign of of Christ. And Paul is basically saying, hey, Jesus has gone to the right hand of God and he is never again going to be brought down to a state of death. And he will never see corruption because God has given him the holy and sure blessings of David. God promised to David that one would sit upon his throne forever. Well, in order for that to happen, the one who sits there must sit there forever. And that is what Paul is getting at. More on this when we continue in Acts 25 where Peter elaborates this in more detail. And then finally Paul says, and he's he's speaking to the Jews. This is how Paul related to Jews. He could get up in a synagogue and the average Jew would understand this message. Because he, God, says in another Psalm 16, you will not give your Holy One to see corruption. So here is Paul weaving together these passages and showing that they all point to the resurrection of the Christ and they all add a dimension to that resurrection that we need to appreciate and understand. And they all demonstrate that Christ is fulfilling the Old Testament in every direction from every angle because he, as the ever-living Christ, will be ever-reigning and he will never see corruption. So why don't we go to Psalm 16 and see what that psalm says. It's quoted. It's a significant psalm. It's something that reinforces the reality of the resurrection, that the Messiah never saw corruption. So turn to Psalm 16, if you will. This is where we're going to finish today. We'll be parked here in Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is going to start out with this, preserve me, O God. And if it was another psalm, we'd think, well, David's going to, within the psalm, talk about all the challenges he's having from enemies, from those who are out to destroy him. He was a king, and everybody was after his throne. Uh, You know, everybody wants to be in charge, but when you're in charge, it it comes with a price tag. And the price tag of being king was everybody wants your power and wealth, and they'll take it any way they can. So he always had enemies. 
But interestingly, in this psalm, there is no enemy. No enemy is iterated except for one. Can you think of what that enemy might be? Only one enemy is mentioned. Verse 9. It's death. Death is the only enemy that this psalm is going to talk about. Preserve me, O God, because there is this one final ultimate enemy. And this psalm, again, this is a messianic psalm. In this psalm, the Spirit of Christ is speaking. In this psalm, the words of the psalmist, who is David, at some point begin to morph from the psalmist's words into the Spirit of Christ's words, into the Messiah's words, a thousand years prior to the event it speaks of. I don't know when that morphing takes place, but for me it seems almost from the beginning. That's why it's such a precious psalm. It's like here is Jesus speaking to us through the prophet David. So I'm going to use the terminology. Sometimes I'll mention David, but mostly I'm going to say psalmist, and I say psalmist because I can't authoritatively say you know, where, that, where that morph from David to Jesus happens. So I'll just put psalmist and I'll let the Holy Spirit bear witness to you. But David, the psalmist, begins with a petition. Psalm 16:1, preserve me, O God. Now God here is the Hebrew word El. It's a word for the God who made heaven and earth. The God who is almighty, who is all-powerful, the Lord of heaven and earth. The one who is full of majesty and glory. And the psalmist says, preserve me, O God. An appeal to this amazing God, an appeal to this great God, an appeal to this exalted God. Preserve me. The word preserve comes from a word which really means to watch over, to guard, to stand guard over, to honor. Preserve me, O God. Now, technically, this is a prayer. We would call it a petition, a cry from the heart to preserve. But it's not a distant plea to preserve. It's not a doubtful plea to preserve. We see and feel in this first opening phrase, preserve me, O God, we feel that this El, this glorious, majestic God, this almighty and all-powerful God, that this plea emanates from a deep well of assurance and faith. This is not a distant plea. It's not just some generic, I know there's a God out there somewhere and you know, I'm going to pray to him and maybe he'll help me out. That's, that's not what the, the plea you feel. This is a God who is near and who is dear. This is a God who is well known. This is a God who is, as we shall see, trusted in. A God who is loved, a God who is praised, a God who is regarded. And this appeal comes from the, the depths of heart. Deep answers unto deep. It is neither distant nor doubtful. This L, this God, is near and dear to the psalmist. And the bond of love and trust, you can just feel it. And so, of course, the 
question comes before us is that our relationship to God. Is your bond and love of love and trust with God, your Father, is it reflected in this, this phrase, O oh God who has always kept me, O oh God who loves me with an everlasting love, O oh God who is for me, preserve me. Preserve me in a hostile world. He says, preserve me because I take refuge in you. Preserve me because I express and I have absolute confidence in you. You are a God whom one can trust completely and I take refuge in you. I take refuge. Refuge is a condition of being safe and sheltered from pursuit or from danger or from trouble. A storm comes up and you take refuge. Calamity comes in the form of war and one takes refuge. A place seeks a place of protection and security, asylum from hardship and trouble. Lord, I take refuge in you. The world of the 10th century BC was a challenging and dangerous place, especially for a king in a small country like Judah. But the king takes refuge in the Lord, and this term refuge, refuge, by the way, is all over the psalm. Some of you may remember it. It occurs 42 times at least. And when you think of Jesus going around Palestine, when you think of all that were after him, all that were plotting against him, all that were trying to destroy him, as the scriptures say. And he would go out in the deserts and pray at night. Do you not think that this was not part of his prayers? Do you wonder if he didn't in his mind find that place in the scroll that he remembers reading and pray this before his own father? Oh God, preserve me, for I take refuge in you. And so for us, is this our first knee-jerk reaction when trouble arises, when issues come? Do we start trying to plan and plot our own way out of things, our own safety? Or is our immediate response from the very depth of our being, oh God, preserve me because I take refuge in you. Refuge. The psalmist goes on, I said to Yahweh. Let me just mention this all the time because it's really, maybe it's just an issue I have, but I tend to just think things through all the time. I don't tend to speak much, and so when I'm praying, I'm often thinking of the prayers in my mind, and then I read a psalm that says, Lord, I you know, prayed out loud to you, I cried unto you. Well, here's another one, I said to Yahweh, I said this. I use my human lips that God gave me to speak many things, but most of all, the best thing we can do with our lips is to praise God. It's a good thing to give thanks unto you, O Most High. To give thanks with the lips, with a voice. Verbal expression. Taking that part of our humanity and engaging with God through it. Prayer should be a verbal expression. Sometimes you pray in your mind and heart, but at some point it should be a verbal expression. Prayer as well as praise should make use of one's lips 
We should always be talking to God. We should always be saying to the Lord. Husbands, how long do you have to go not talking to your wife before you hear about it? Very long. I can make it about 10 minutes, maybe. Why aren't you talking to me? It's the same with the Lord. Why aren't you talking to me? Why are you not conversing with God? As James says, you have not because you ask not. Are you engaging with God? Are you conversing with God? Are you saying to the Lord things, requests to preserve me? And then some of the things that we have articulated here. When was the last time you or I actually said something out loud to God? When was the last time you poured out your heart to God with the lips? I said unto Yahweh, I said unto my covenant God, I said unto the God who loves me with an everlasting love, I said unto that God who is in covenant with me and his chesed and his emeth, his covenant love and his faithfulness undergirds everything. I said unto Yahweh, you are my Lord. David begins with, again, as Jesus outlined, my, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are my Lord. Do you not think this wasn't in Jesus' heart speaking to his own Father? You, O oh Father, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Matthew 11. This is a deep commandment to Yahweh as Adonai, as Lord. The covenant God is my Lord, my master. There's this recognition that goes to the bone. You are my Lord. I remember all the debates about the Lordship of Christ, at least that, you know, were happening a decade or two ago, and they'll come up again, by the way. It's, a, it's always going to be perennial. Satan just, re, he recycles all of his successful would you say heresies and aberrations? He recycles them, just repackages them and reuses them. Satan has a lot of rotten things, but he is smart. He's always on the job. There are actually some positive things you can say about Satan, even though you don't want to. You are my Lord. This is the essence of Christianity. That our hearts cry out, Abba, Father. Our hearts cry out, you are my Lord. You are my God. As Jesus said in John chapter 20, at, right at the resurrection, he says, go and tell my disciples, I go unto my Father and your Father. I go unto my God and your God. I said unto Yahweh, you are my Lord. When we read of hesed and imeth in the, in the Old Testament, two Hebrew words, hesed, again, covenant love, the deepest form of love there is, hesed, and emeth, sometimes translated truth, but the essence of it is really faithfulness. Again, a word of deep commitment, and that's what covenant is about, is about commitment. And we read all throughout the Old Testament that God has covenant love and faithfulness to us. 
the very nature of covenant, the very heart and soul of covenant. And yet here the psalmist expresses back to God his own covenant love, his own chesed, his own emeth. You are my Lord. The opposite of self-centeredness, the opposite of self-will and self-infatuation. I've said unto Yahweh, you are my Lord, and you have made me free from the tyranny of self. The world glories in self-fulfillment and self-reliance. The psalmist glories in the recognition of who God is. And glad, joyful submission to him. Here is just one of those places where you have another aspect of what it is to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. I said to Yahweh, I told him, I let him know, you are my Lord. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time you just said, the world's got to stop, I'm stopping the world, I'm stopping my participation in it. I am stepping back and I'm telling God who he is to me with my lips. I'm going to raise my hands and just proclaim it. Do it. I was thinking, you know, Gwen was talking about as we were coming up the steps here, she was just talking about she likes crunching on the acorns because they remind her of, well, she didn't say fall, she said Operation Christmas Child. Because for Gwen, that's just a time of joy. I mean, she's just excited about buying all the stuff, putting it in the boxes, because she knows that we're going to send some presents out into the world to some people for whom these presents will be hopefully amazing. And what do we imagine? We imagine the joy on the little kids' faces that we give to get to give them something. And just the excitement of that is just amazing, isn't it? Then it just fill you. It's like, put that box off, man. Someone's going to really, really appreciate this. What do you think God's looking from you? He's given you redemption. He's given you salvation. He's given you himself. What, is it? what does he want back? That Operation Christmas Child Box, wouldn't you love a picture of a little kid opening? Wouldn't you just love to see that? What do you think God wants from us? A picture of us as little kids. Knowing what he's done for us, knowing who he is, knowing what he's given us, knowing what is in store for us, and just be full of gladness and joy. That's what he's looking for. You are my Lord. This defines us. This is what God wants from us. Because it's the right thing, it's the proper thing, it, it's our proper alignment, our existence is properly aligned when this is what is in our heart. It fits into God's ultimate universe, it fits into eternity perfectly. You are my Lord. Then again he goes on, I have no good besides you, I have no good beyond you. The psalmist isn't saying that there aren't good things in life. 
I mean, it's, it's a mark of a doctrine of demons to say that the good things that God has given in this world, marriage, food, things like that, to say that those are wrong, that those are somehow, in their essence, evil, or somehow not holy, and, and it's, just, it's just a mark, you know, all, or would you say, just uh, monasticism is not from God. Never was, never will be. All legalisms are not from God because they take the things that God has given and they turn them into something they're not. Now, others take the things that God has given and worship them and think that there's life in them, in themselves, and well, that's wrong too. But the psalmist isn't saying here that the good things in life are not good. It's just, he's just saying that this is not the essence of life. They are very tertiary to our life. As Jesus said, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, that they may say from their hearts to you, oh, my Father, I have no good beyond you. Whatever good things we have in this life, whatever material possessions, whatever experiences, whatever relationship, all of them are ultimately good. All of them ultimately have meaning because they center in God. They find their meaning in God. They emanate from God. They all, again, fit into God's universe where God himself is at the top of the heap. God will give us all good things to enjoy, not everything we want, but certainly everything we need. But we ultimately find our center and meaning in God himself. Sin moves people to want to enjoy God's good things without God. God, I want stuff, I just don't want you. I want the stuff you've given, but you know, you, not so interested. That's sin. It's kind of like building an orphanage but having no children in it. It's empty and pointless. And a life that says I'm going to have the stuff of the world to supposedly enjoy, but the God who made all things don't want to know him, don't want any orientation to him. But this is true Christianity. This is what God works in our hearts for. This is why God takes things from us at times so that we will ultimately be in a place to learn and to know and experience and say, I have no good beyond you. Well, the psalm moves on in verse 3. That's for the saints who are in the earth. Not only is God central, but the people of God are central especially those who are currently alive and present and sort of in, in your framework of experience. But the psalmist moves from God and having a right orientation to God and a right sense of who God is to immediately pointing to the saints who are in the earth. The other little dust balls of clay who've been infused with the breath of life of God. We cannot regard God, no one can regard God without having a regard for the people of God. We hear it a lot, 
a lot of you, you go door to door and what do you hear from people? Well, I believe in God and I think well of God, but you know, I just don't go to church because it's not necessary. Uh, that's not what I'm reading here. Is that what you're reading here? You cannot regard God without a regard for the people of God. They are the two sides of the same coin. Fellowship with the saints is not optional. Now, perhaps some churches are, you know, more traditional than one would like, or perhaps not as clear and accurate as one would like, or different things, but nevertheless, if you love God, if you know God, if you experience God, then you're going to want to somehow, somewhere, someway be with the people of God. We read in 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us, if we have experienced the love of God in Christ, then we also ought to love one another. See, my covenant commitment to God as a response to his covenant commitment to me, my love for God as as a response to his love for me spills over into others who love God. And that's why Jesus said one of the first things out of the chute, one of the first things he points out in John 13 through 17 is he says, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another even as I have loved you. See, that is in the heart of Christ. He's going to the cross and that is what is in his heart. As for the saints who are in the earth, That's the whole reason Jesus came here. That's the whole reason Jesus died. He went to that cross. That's the whole reason he went back to heaven is to bring us with him. The saints who are in the earth. A perspective that isolates you from the people of God is not from God. That's false. It's false Christianity. It's false religion. A perspective of elitism or self-importance is not from God because it will keep you from the saints. You may be with them, but it'll keep you from them. You won't be able to hang with them. Went to the uh, mission for the first time this morning. It was, it was great. I had my message all prepared. Only had two hours of sleep. So no surprise I went off script, but I was glad to go off script. So were they apparently. We had a good time. Some people to pray for, Lorenzo, just a meek, mild man who just came up and just said, I really need prayer to stand firm in the Lord. And it was genuine. I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but his, his request for prayer was genuine. Yarrow got to talk to a fellow named Dwayne. Just an incredible story of his life. But one of the things I mentioned off script is what captured his, his mind and heart basically just said, everyone he hears in the image of God, you have great worth and value to God. We know all about how it happened that you came to be, but when you became to be, when you began, when your existence began, God was there. God was there knitting you together in your mother's womb. And that just gripped his soul. He grew up in a family in circumstances that were atheistic, just antagonistic to God. 
And Yarrow had some really good conversation with them. Yarrow was, you should talk to Yarrow, it's a really good story of the things he talked to him about. Dwayne. And then there was a fellow. Everybody had left, it's in this, if you haven't been there, it's in this big basketball gym and you're just sort of at one end talking and everybody kind of left. And there's this one guy way at the end of the basketball thing. I'm kind of watching him as I'm sort of, there's a few guys left over I was talking with. And he just does this slow walk up to the front of the gym where I'm at, sticks out his hand to shake my hand, and then he just does a slow walk back. And as I was leaving, I said, yeah, thank you. You walked all the way up here just to, just to shake my hand. That made my day. And it did. Would that make your day? To have someone who is obviously in a place where they have failed in life, at least outwardly. And just to come up and shake your hand, to want to share with you something simple of themselves. Elitism or self-importance is not from God. It will keep you from the people of God. It will keep you from every human being. A perspective that makes discriminating distinctions among the brethren is not from God. A perspective that elevates self or others to celebrity status is not from God. It just isn't. We're all one in Christ Jesus. We all have a contribution to make. George, George gave me the handshake. I'm going to remember it for a long time. He gave me something of himself. Amazing. The saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones. Can you say that about folks here? Is Shep a majestic one? I won't ask Paula. She'll have her own perspectives. But for the rest of us, is Shep a majestic one? Is this the regard you have for your brethren? Spiritual maturity recognizes and regards how precious each and every saint is to God. The one speaking this is Jesus. As for all of my people, all of the saints in the earth over the last 2,000 years and whatever years are to come, they are the majestic ones. In the Old Testament, God said God made a distinction between the Jews and the, and the Egyptians. And God makes a distinction between the people of this world who determined to remain in darkness and his majestic ones. We are all in Christ. We are all redeemed by the precious blood. We are all everlastingly beloved of God. We are the majestic ones. We are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3.26. We are the majestic ones. We are beloved and beloved. And now we are the children of God, 1 John 3.2. We are the majestic ones. Is that how you regard your brother and your sister? Jesus has a whole universe at his disposal, and it's amazing. 
Jesus has a vast army of angels at his command. And that's power. But the center of his delight is his brethren, whom he determined to bring to glory. Gossip and criticism should be far from us. Showing hospitality without murmuring should always be our strategy. Every now and then you should be reading Romans 12. What an awesome little passage. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love and give preference to one another in honor. Recognize that the least of the saints is one of the majestic ones. The majestic ones in whom is all of God's delight. The Lord, his delight is in us. He delights in all things. He regards his universe. He regards angels. They're awesome. One day we get to hang out with them. We get to hear all their stories of all the things they did to save us from our stupidity. Hang out with them. But we're the sons of God. Jesus went to the cross because we are the ones in whom is all his delight. The psalmist goes on to talk about those who are not the delight of God, those who are not the majestic ones. Those who have bartered for another God, it's an idiom for idolatry. Those who have got into a relationship with another God, who are transacting with another God, who trust in false gods. In our day, it's the ultimate false God, the false God of humanism. This is idolatry, and idolatry betrays God. Idolatry trades God in for stuff or for ideas for anything but him. Idolatry reinvents God and exchanges the true God for a lie. They barter, they transact with another God. Throughout the Old Testament, idolatry in any form is represented as spiritual adultery. And all you have to think of is the pain and odiousness of adultery to understand what God thinks of when we give ourselves to other gods, to other ideas of God, to other perspectives. When we start giving our allegiance and our time and our affection for that which is not centered in God. The sorrows, their sorrows, those who transact with other gods, they will be multiplied. When people give up God and exchange him for other things, then God gives them up, Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32. When people give up God, they become empty and they're spiritually blind and distorted. They're without God and without hope in the world. palling around with worldly folks may have temporal benefit, but in the end, there will be only sorrows. Sorrows will be multiplied. All you have to do is read the end of Romans chapter 1 and all the things that people become when they give up God. They're not nice things. 
They're not things that you would really want to hang out with, that you would really want to be a part of. Or 2 Timothy chapter 3, the first verses, what people become when they give up God, when they turn to self, when they turn to false views of God, what happens as they descend into spiritual darkness of their own making. It will never produce a positive experience or a positive outcome. In the end, it will be only sorrows. Psalmist goes on to declare, I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood. The psalmist will not ever, ever, under any circumstance, partake in their ceremonies and rituals, their drink offerings. And these drink offerings and these ceremonies and rituals, it's good that we don't know what they are. I really don't know, want to know what they are. I really don't want to get engaged in them. If you're trying to understand world religions so that you can answer them, don't get into all that detail. It won't help you and it won't be your answer. You just kind of want to know, what is my basic strategy? The details just aren't worth it. They won't help you. Know the gospel. Present the gospel and just know what, is, what are their strategic challenges and here I have strategic gospel answers. That's all we need to know. Because see, in all those details is where there's all this ritual and all this ceremony where they profess allegiance to their false gods. And those rituals and ceremonies in the Old Testament at times meant burning babies alive. It meant distorted orgies. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood. I will have nothing to do with it. My brothers and sisters, stay far away. Movies are tough for us because we always end up getting a little closer than we should be and having to repent. But one thing's for sure, stay away from movies that have demonism in it, witchcraft, all those things. Do not engage in their drink offerings of blood. Don't do it. I will not take their names upon my lips. I will never under any circumstance recognize them or acknowledge them. I will never call upon them for help or refuge. I will never swear an oath to them. There will never be anything concerning covenant love and faithfulness with regard to them. Their faults, their evil, their lies. Today's idolatry takes the form of materialism, scientism, feminism, social justice, politics, and on and on and on. We must always be careful how much we engage in these things, how much of their ideologies and thinking and perspectives we imbibe and take on ourselves because it will not bring life. It will only bring sorrows. And we are told this over and over in the New Testament, be not fashioned according to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's how radical the distinction is. That's how far you stay away from worldliness. Not from people, not for love of people who are in it. 1 Corinthians 5 has to address that. But from the mindset, from the perspectives, from the activities, 
Do not engage in it. We have to stop here. Here is the Messiah speaking speaking from prophetic utterance. Preserve me, O God, for you are my refuge. I will say unto Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have no good beyond you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing psalm. Lord Jesus, what an amazing psalm. Lord, people make paintings and uh, put their signature at the bottom and your signature's all over this one. Lord, what an expression of your heart. What a personal expression of your heart to us. And, and some of these things we will never be able to imitate you because you are the eternal son and you are Messiah and you are Redeemer, but in many things we can imitate you. Lord, let us always express our faith and hope and love to you. Let that always be the foundation and mainstay of our lives. Lord, may we ever recognize that you are the Lord, you are Adonai. That we truly do not have good beyond you. We have no good outside of the framework of You as the great and glorious God who made all things. All things are ours, but all things always have their meaning and purpose and significance with reference to you. Lord, may we always have that, put that in our hearts. Lord Jesus, we thank you that's what you did. You loved the Father. You did his will. It was your meat to do his will. It was your food and drink to do his will. Lord, write this psalm on our hearts those parts of it that fit. And I thank you for all my brethren here. And may we always, always, always regard one another as we ought. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.